with the separate activity of moralizing. The latter, as a friend once wrote, is to morality what artiness is to art, religiosity to religion, and sentimentality to sentiment. I have tried to make this book as detached as possible. It is not a work of moralizing enthusiasm. All of us would like to believe that we could not do some of the things, major or minor, by commission or omission, described in this book. We should all reflect whether this would have been the case had we been responsible adults living in the belligerent nations of the time. How many of us would press for sanctions while knowing they aren't going to work, or counsel radical military action without thinking through the human as well as geostrategic consequences? What actually impresses is that, in circumstances where the temptation to inhumanity must have been overpowering, a vestigial regard for decent or lawful conduct survived at all. Warfare among savages is often relatively less bloody because of its agnostic or ritualistic element of posturing. There is a lot of drumming, stamping, and shouting, but not much blood is spilled, at least if we discount the Aztecs. Since ancient and medieval times, civilized men have endeavored to mitigate the effects of war, notably through doctrines of just war, all ably expounded in a thoughtful book by Charles Guthrie and Michael Quinlan. These doctrines consisted of a series of injunctions about the lawful authorization of armed conflict and the relationship between ends and means, together with the need to exercise humanity, discrimination, and proportionality while waging war. These religious and philosophical exhortations often gelled with the severely practical outlook of warriors on ancient, medieval, or early modern battlefields, who knew that getting a substantial ransom was better than having a dead prisoner. Throughout, however, there was an extreme alternative, of war ad Romanum, where the enemy and his population could be enslaved and killed, allegedly in line with what was thought to be ancient Roman practice. Sometimes, in the Middle Ages, a red banner would be flown to indicate that chivalric norms were cancelled, and that the type of war visited on infidels or rebels would ensue. As an excellent collection of essays, edited by Michael Howard and others, reveals, even by the mid-seventeenth century, men-at-arms knew what constituted decent practice in warfare. While I do not think any war has ever been good— the Second World War, which killed fifty-five million people, was a necessary war against at least one regime which, uniquely, modernized barbarism into an industrial process, and another that visited cruelty and savagery on the many peoples of East Asia, from the Chinese to indigenous tribes on remote Pacific islands. That does not diminish the war against Italian fascist imperialism, or the moral problems raised by the Western alliance of desperation with the Soviet Union, which imposed communist tyranny on half of liberated Europe. Nor does it seek to excuse allied war crimes, although those should not be elided with what are uncharmingly called collateral casualties, which were not the objectives of an operation. To construe the D-Day landings as anything other than a noble enterprise, which the vast majority of French people welcomed, because various Allied bombardments killed tens of thousands of their compatriots, seems perverse. The British cabinet had grave reservations about this, but when they consulted the free French general Pierre Koenig, he replied that lives are lost in any war, 
and this was the price to be paid for liberation of his country. Around the margins there have been attempts to revise our general perceptions of the conflict. Some conservatives claim that Britain and the U.S. should have let Hitler and Stalin slog it out so that the victor, assuming they both did not lose, would have been too exhausted to take over either the whole or half of the European mainland. This line of argument reflects mutual Anglo-American animosities, to the effect that Churchill and Roosevelt somehow tricked the U.S. into war against Germany, or that the war's ultimate beneficiaries were the Soviets and the Americans, who liquidated the British Empire and dominated a divided Europe. It also adopts a narrowly strategic view of the issues involved, taking realism to the level of amoralism. Now, while I have sympathy with the view that in some foreign policy circles it is always 1938, with even...